Do you ever have people who don't recognize you and they ask you what you do? Do you like tell them? I don't say I work for CNN. The first thing I say is I write about the court. I write about the Supreme Court. Are people like, ugh. No, let me tell you about that part because that's changed. Because now people will say things like, what's with them or what's with so-and-so? For better or worse, Supreme Court justices are now household names. And with a 6-3 conservative majority, they're overturning precedent. I want to get straight to our Jessica Schneider, who is outside of the court uh, with more Jessica What is the opinion from the court? Poppy and Jim, the court issuing that landmark ruling that this nation has been bracing for, and the Supreme Court has overturned Roe v. Wade, that they have eliminated the constitutional right to an abortion. And at first glance, this opinion is very similar to that draft opinion that we saw leaked just about a month and a half ago at the beginning of May. The Supreme Court stirring up protests with its decision gutting affirmative action, saying colleges and universities can no longer rely on race in the admissions process. And then off the bench, some of the members have been accused of making shady ethical moves. A brand new report is raising some serious questions about Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and the lavish gifts that he reportedly accepted from a GOP mega donor. So their decisions inside and outside the courtroom are making people think... Maybe we should be watching them more closely. We have a broad level of tools to deal with misconduct, overreach, and abuse of power. And the Supreme Court has not been receiving the adequate oversight necessary in order to preserve their own legitimacy. I'm Audie Cornish, and today on The Assignment, we're going to chat with someone who is watching them closely, fellow CNNer Joan Biskupic. We'll talk about the personalities behind the nine black robes, how the freshman justices are shaking things up, and whether this partisan era court can stop its freefall in public trust. Reporter-wise, the Supreme Court is a super competitive beat. You can't take recording devices in with you to the courtroom. So that means reporters take handwritten notes during oral arguments. And when news breaks, you're physically running out of the door to make your deadline. Joan Biskupic is now CNN's senior Supreme Court analyst, and she's been at this a long time. I remember when I first went into the Supreme Court in the late 80s, uh, covering it for Congressional Quarterly's weekly report. I remember thinking, oh, my God, they all look alike. How am I going to tell them apart? Because (laughs) because they were basically a bunch of old white men. We did have Thurgood Marshall and we did have Sandra Day O'Connor, but everyone else sort of blended together. That's not the situation anymore, which I think actually makes it a more interesting group. But it's easier now for people to identify the justices. She also gets weirdly jazzed in a way that only a beat reporter can about their personalities. She knows about their parents, their heroes and mentors, their hobbies. And she does a lot of detective work around how they relate to each other. Her perspective has affected how I see the court. What I really like to specialize in is figuring out what happened behind the scenes to produce an opinion. So I'm always— So the wrangling, the conversations. Exactly. Who switched votes. That's what I feel like I can bring to this beat is how how did these opinions come about? And I do a lot of reconstruction from behind the scenes, what I can pick up from interviews, from documents, as much as I can. 
So for the purposes of this conversation, I want to start with what I would call uh, the freshmen. Like there's a batch of newbies, so to speak, of the last couple of years. And let's start with Neil Gorsuch. What was his personality in terms of how he approached being the new guy on the court? As not the new guy on the court. He had none of the freshmen about him. Uh, like, it, what's the typical? Typically, the typical, you should be kind of deferential. Oh, yes. And I can remember talking to Justice Alito when he was fairly new on the bench, and he kept bopping his head against the microphone in front of him just because he was getting used to where the microphone was. He deliberately laid back in some of the Q&A, letting the more senior justices go first. And that's usually what happens. Neil Gorsuch and uh, Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson now, both of them feel like, I'm in there. I'm in there right away. And Neil Gorsuch, because it was 2017, he stood out at the time for being much more aggressive with his questioning, much more uh, active in his writing. He uh, wrote a lot of separate opinions in his early months and years on the court. And I trace back some of his attitude toward Washington to his mother. Who we should say uh, had worked for the Environmental Protection Agency. She was head of it. She was the first woman, Anne Gorsuch Burford was the first woman who ever headed the EPA. She was in the Ronald Reagan administration, and she was someone who wanted to roll back regulations. She became, but you also made her sound like a total Washington character. Oh, she was a great character. She wore <laughs> she wore these black minks. She drove a fancy car. She always had a cigarette wagon before, between her fingers. She was from Colorado, and she sort of defied Washington. She defied her own people, which is why, in the end, she was actually dumped by the Reagan administration. She became way too controversial for even them. So when you dig into that kind of history, what of their backgrounds do the justices bring to these conversations, these deliberations? I think they can't help but bring their own experiences. And you have everyone from an extreme on one end who had a mother or parent in Washington, in the administration. But then let's take somebody else. Let's take John Roberts, sitting at the center of this court in so many ways. I call him such a first-in-his-class striver. He went to a Catholic boys' prep school where he was number one in his class in northern Indiana. Then he goes to Harvard and finishes college in three years. And then he goes to Harvard Law School and then clerks for then-associate Justice William Rehnquist and quickly gets into the Ronald Reagan administration. Knowing that, knowing his background, I think really helps inform the kind of person he becomes on the court. And I think that's the case in for the more intriguing example, someone like Sonia Sotomayor, who came from the Bronx and really had to scrap her way up, you know, did super well at Princeton and Yale, but has always felt like she had to show people what she could do because of past discrimination against her. And so that's you can informative. Maybe hear echoes of that in some of her rulings, right? Where she's spoken from the bench. Absolutely. One of the things that's interesting uh, about this, I'm just jokingly calling it the freshman class, but three of them are appointees of the former president. And it's very clear that you think he had a profound effect on the court, not just in having these appointees, but just like in the way he talked about them. 
to them, about them. What was it that made him distinct? He acted like he owned the judiciary. He would say, even in 2017, seven days into office, he signs an order for the travel ban that affected mainly Muslim-majority countries. And when lower court judges rejected that, he would say, just wait till you get to the Supreme Court. Just wait till you get to the Supreme Court. Once he places Neil Gorsuch on the court and then Brett Kavanaugh and then Amy Coney Barrett, he talked as if he— own them in ways that he thought that they would rule predictably for him. And then when the court did not rule for him, he took it personally Can also. You give an example? He, would he say something publicly or these tweets or like what is it? He said that he understood that one of the main reasons he got elected was because of the Supreme Court, because he understood that people expected him to put certain jurists on the bench. So he identified himself with the court that way. And then Ruth Bader Ginsburg dies in September of 2020. And there's initially a little bit of controversy about whether he will quickly be able to get his person on the court. And he says, it's important to get someone on the court. We need nine people on the court. He wanted to make sure Amy Coney Barrett was on the court for an election case. Now, in the end, we know that this Supreme Court did not just completely ducked out. How did the court feel about how openly he spoke in that manner? Oh, well, privately, many of them were bristling at it. But here's a public episode that we can point to. In November of 2018, We're just like a month and a half after Brett Kavanaugh has come on, and there's all this controversy over his coming on. And we had yet another immigration asylum-related case in lower court with Donald Trump, and Donald Trump is deriding the judge who ruled against his asylum policy, and he refers to him as an Obama judge. That was the only time that Chief Justice John Roberts has said anything publicly about Donald Trump and his attitude toward the Supreme Court. And you probably remember, Audie, when right before Thanksgiving of 2018, the Chief Justice does something that you know he just doesn't do. He issued a public statement saying he, judges— yeah, No, I have the quote here because oh, I was fascinated. It says, we do not have Obama judges or Trump judges, Bush judges or Clinton judges— What we have is an extraordinary group of dedicated judges doing their level best to do equal right to those appearing before them. What strikes me about Robert's statement is not just that he said it, but like, does anyone believe that anymore? You know, John Roberts himself is always aware of who appointed whom. So there's like he literally helped select options for the Reagan administration. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's let's unpack that. First of all, yes. John Roberts was as political as anyone when it comes to who gets on the bench. But he also, by this point in November of 2018, you know, Trump was not wearing well with some of the justices just because he was acting as if it's such a political institution. And drawing attention to them. In a, a way that they didn't they want. Exactly, want. Yeah. exactly. It kind of goes back to you know, what we were talking about before. This is a group that, you know, they like the idea of the black robe, you know, disguise, you know, sort of yeah, covering like them in, a in some ways. somewhere in their e- sort of Exactly, cloister. exactly. So despite John Roberts' own deep political instincts, this was not anything he, was, he wanted to abide by. Plus, he has so many times 
before Trump said the one thing that the public should know most about the Supreme Court is that it is not political. He was always protesting it. He was saying— Feels like he's lost that battle. Oh, he's Definitely so lost that battle. According to some recent surveys. Yes, he's so lost that battle. It's generationally, and, like, yes. no one believes it. And also what Justice Elena Kagan would say is one of the reasons you lose that battle of— seeming political is because people see you as being political and the rulings appear political even to her. I want to ask about the relationships on the court. Uh, there, I think there's a quote from Clarence Thomas where he talks about the idea that when he first started out, it was kind of like a dysfunctional family a little bit. But a family. But a family. Not so much anymore. What's going on? Oh, you're referring to something he said uh, last year that really struck me because I was aware of the fact that Clarence Thomas always liked the old chief, William Rehnquist, and was a little bit suspicious of our current chief. And you'll note in that quote, he referred to the time with Chief Justice Rehnquist. They were a family, which is dysfunctional family, but a family. Thomas for years was writing dissents, kind of into the void, right? He wasn't on the winning side of things. And yet he still felt sort of comfortable with the personalities on the court. Absolutely. You know, he he understood Ruth, he says, referring to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. He got her. He got them. He made those comments in the wake of the leak of the Dobbs opinion before the actual ruling came out right after it had been leaked in May of 2022. And, you know, he was saying, we're now looking over our shoulders and it's been like this for a while. And I thought he was pulling back the curtain on a certain degree of distrust among individual justices. And I want to underscore that you said distrust because I'm not the kind of person that thinks – lawmakers or our public officials need to, like, go fishing with each other and stuff. I understand there's a whole thing of, like, they went to the opera together and everybody was friends. But you're using the term distrust. What do you mean by that? My sense is that some of the justices felt that they weren't sure their colleagues were playing straight with them in terms of some of the internal dealings. And I'll give you an example just from what Clarence Thomas said. When he was praising Ruth Bader Ginsburg, he said, you knew where she stood. Now, the suggestion in that and other things I know is that he didn't always feel like he knew where other colleagues stood. If That's surprising because for the public and reporters, they tend to say, there's this many conservatives, there's this many liberals, we know what everyone's going to say. Ah, but behind the scenes as you're hashing out the details of the case and the nuances and how the rules that they're setting are going to affect other cases, there's just all sorts of layers of complexity of how a ruling then will play out and how far they're going to go in a ruling. How far will they go in a ruling? And I'll give you a great example that has had internal reverberations since it happened. 2012, when Chief Justice John Roberts switches his vote in the Obamacare case. And actually, he switched a couple votes. It was the original Obamacare case in June of 2012, when Chief Justice John Roberts at one point had voted with his colleagues and with with, uh, Justice Thomas to strike it down. He has a change of heart, and he switches a pair of votes after working with uh, Justices Stephen Breyer and Elena Kagan on the left. That sowed a lot of distrust. That's where they have some trouble with them. Give us an example of when 
the court, with with all of its newbies right now, tried to have that relationship building, and it faltered. Because they've been through a lot. COVID and the increased scrutiny under the Trump years. Is there any attempt to... Yeah, build that dysfunctional family? Well, I can point to a time when they did feel like they needed to band together, and that was right after Justice Scalia died, and they were down to eight. So they were having trouble deciding cases without 4-4 splits. So there was an incentive on both sides, and let's just name two conservatives who felt that incentive. Then Justice Anthony Kennedy and Chief Justice Roberts working with a couple members from the four on the left, and notably Breyer and Kagan would work together to find a middle. Now, if we come up to the present, there's less of an incentive to work together on cases when you have a conservative supermajority, because one of those justices might be thinking, eh, maybe we don't want to go so fast here. But he will have five justices to his right who are saying, no, it's time. It's time to go right. And that would be exactly what happened in the Dobbs opinion, where Chief Justice Roberts, who has opposed abortion rights uh, and was not in any way a fan of Roe v. Wade, was trying to take a different step. He still would have severely cut back on Roe v. Wade by uh, allowing— bans on abortion before viability, before a fetus is viable, but he just did not want to overturn the whole thing. And there were no takers. There were no takers for that on to his right. The nerds who follow Supreme Court law rulings and um, people who follow the rulings very closely might read SCOTUS blog. And one of the headlines they published at one point is, John Roberts is the chief, but it's Clarence Thomas's court. True, not true from your position. Not true. Now, Clarence Thomas has gotten so much more powerful, so much more powerful over the years. You know, I I covered his confirmation hearings, and I remember it so vividly as if it were yesterday. And, you know, as you had mentioned earlier, he was a dissenter, 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 and and proudly dissenting and proudly pushing, pushing very hard um, to roll back rulings, to revisit precedent. Uh, he he had no self-consciousness about being alone over there. And But what happened, especially during the Trump years, is he was joined by like-minded jurists. So he has become very powerful, and he is someone who the newest justices definitely admire. And he has uh, really made a lot of headway, for example, on the Second Amendment. He wrote uh, the major gun ruling last year that just changed uh, Second Amendment gun rights. But I still have to stop and say he is not at the center of what's happening. The chief still controls. Now, he didn't control that Dobbs ruling. That's a huge so example, is, yeah, that case and I've and I've referred to that yes, and I've referred to that as a you know a defining de- decision of John Roberts' generation. But John Roberts still controls on racial issues. John Roberts still controls on regulatory issues. John Roberts still is going to be able to persuade Brett Kavanaugh to at times kind of move over a little bit to the left. But I don't want to at all diminish the force of Clarence Thomas, but I am not calling this the Clarence Thomas court. And last year when uh, maybe SCOTUS blog had that headline, I would I would definitely give 
some credence to it, but I've always said never count out John Roberts. After the break, Joan breaks down the challenges the nation's highest court faces today. We'll be right back. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Supreme Court has been in the news a lot lately, not only for its rulings, but also for its members' lives outside the courtroom. I asked my colleague Joan Biskupic to walk me through the ethical questions, for example, swirling around Justice Clarence Thomas. The first begins with his wife, Ginny Thomas, who was quite active uh, in President Trump's re-election attempt. And emails have emerged through the January 6th investigation of her uh, writing to Mark Meadows, former chief of staff to President Trump, saying, you know, something has to be done here. You know, she she definitely believed that Donald Trump had won. And this was something that was getting caught up in the courts. And even though the Supreme Court itself never ruled on a major election issue involving Donald Trump and Joe Biden, it did handle some cases. Right. And uh, the implications, given that Trump had spent a bunch of years saying, wait till things get to my court. Exactly. It, it takes right. on new significance. It right? does. And and once you see where this justice's wife has been and the fact that he has not recused himself from cases that arguably involve some issues surrounding January 6th and surrounding the disputed election of 2020, uh, the question arises, should he have recused? So that's one whole issue. The second issue has come from the ProPublica reporting on Justice Thomas's relationship with the Republican mega donor Harlan Crow, who has has given Clarence Thomas all sorts of gifts of travel, time at resorts, helped uh, finance uh, Thomas's grandnephew's education, and also engaged in a real estate deal with um, to buy Clarence Thomas's mother's house in Georgia. So th- all sorts of things that were not disclosed on his on yeah. his annual. And report. do you get the sense on the court that people are bothered? Actually. 
We might be getting to some sort of tipping point, but for a lot of months, when I would check in with some of the justices I can talk to and some of the chambers, they basically saw this as, uh, you know, it's up to individual justices to decide how to respond to this. Uh, they also tend to circle the wagons. This is one thing I will always say about those justices. They might not get along individually, but the minute someone from the outside is going to put more scrutiny on an individual justice, uh, they see themselves in that and they start to close ranks. How does that add to um, the stew of perceptions? Right. As the court is started to be, I don't know, for lack of a better term, kind of diminished in in the eyes of the public. I think it definitely adds to it. Think of how much easier that is for average people to understand that somebody took uh, (laughs) an undisclosed trip on a a Republican mega donors private yacht, uh, his uh, his private jet, went to all these fancy places. People get that. People get the idea that if you're in government, you know, you're not supposed to be taking things like that. You're you're part of being a public servant. It's a certain attitude. People understand that more than they understand the nuances of the Administrative Procedure Act, which is at the heart of many cases. Which now I'm like, wait, what is that? No, you don't need, you don't need to know it. You don't need to know it. <laughs> not, not my beat. Okay, she's letting me off the hook here a bit. Clarence Thomas has issued a statement about these reports, saying that in his early tenure on the court, he'd been told that, quote, personal hospitality from close friends didn't need to be reported. Now, he notes, the Committee of the Judicial Conference responsible for financial disclosures, this is for the entire federal judiciary, has announced new guidance. And Justice Thomas says, quote, it is, of course, my intent to follow this guidance in the future. But to some, guidelines aren't enough. And I asked Joan about those calls for more intense oversight. I think the court itself should figure out a way to police itself. There, right now, there is Isn't no... Isn't that against the point? Well, but they don't even have anything. Like, they don't even have a formal code of ethics. They don't even have a way to resolve complaints or or even have more formal uh, guidelines for how they should be operating. It's so open-ended. And that's why, you know, every, every week, some new episode emerges where the justices haven't disclosed information, they've uh, engaged in questionable behavior, so they're not even really policing their own. So kind of shocked by that, that there isn't like, like at every job I've ever had, there's been a, you know, a book an inch thick that's like, here are the guidelines, here's the code of ethics, here are the rules. Right. No one got around to writing that for them. Right. And for Congress to try to do it, I do think can be tricky because of the separation of powers issues. But it's good that so much attention is coming to it. I actually think all these stories have only been good. And all this scrutiny that the justices are getting is only good because, as I know you you saw in my book, I mean, my mantra is this is your Supreme Court. These people control so much of our lives, so they should face tough scrutiny. I want to talk a little bit more about that because this has been one of the most consequential years, maybe last two years, of rulings from the Supreme Court in terms of rulings that really affect the lives of everyday people. Um, Do you mind running through some of them? I don't want to miss any. No, okay, so I'll give you the big ones from last year. I think that most people will remember, but let's remind them. 
the Dobbs ruling that we've kind of called it by its shorthand. That's where the justices overturned nearly a half century of abortion rights. It was the 1973 Roe v. Wade case that established constitutional abortion rights. That is now gone. It's now a state-by-state situation. The other big case from last year was, I I mentioned briefly, the expanded gun rights, uh, 6-3 case where the justices really breathe much more power support into the Second Amendment for people to own and use firearms. This year, they overturned university affirmative action. They also ruled that the Biden administration cannot forgive student loans. They, at the same time, enhanced federal court power. And then finally, one that, again, was decided by a 6-3 vote, that was the one where they ruled for a woman who was a website designer who wanted to expand into wedding websites, but said from the outset she did not want to serve same-sex couples trying to celebrate their marriage with a website. That's where the rubber meets the road. This is how much they are in our lives. So this brings me to the kind of counter-movement, because I I would say you outlined the rise of the conservative movement's effort to claim the court for itself. And they do that by building up the ideology and think tank structure, right? The the sort of legal ideologies that are behind the things that they want. You have the Federalist Society, for example, that becomes a kind of vetting machine, right? And club and pool of people to draw from. For any president who wants things to go in a more conservative direction. How do you think the left has, is, or understands it can respond? The left has tried so hard. The left has had um, a couple things going against it. One is timing, for goodness sakes. If you just go back to like Jimmy Carter, a Democratic president, didn't get a single appointment to the Supreme Court. So part of it is timing. Who's leaving? Who gets to come on? And we saw famously what Mitch McConnell did when Justice Scalia died and he blocked for nearly a year the appointment of Merrick Garland, who President Obama had chosen. Right. So and part then the of- posthumous discussion about Ruth Bader Ginsburg and whether she could have stepped down sooner. Exactly. There's so there are all these other factors about timing and who leaves and who's in the White House. Democratic presidents as a group have not had the good luck that Republican presidents have had in terms of timing. Now, the Biden administration has made a special effort with the judicial nominations, right? They're sort of flooding the zone with people from labor, with people from kind of the public defender's office, et cetera. What do you see reflected in Katanji Brown-Jackson's appointment to the court? What does she reflect in terms of the kind of jurist the left wants now? She embodies everything the left wants. First of all, she made history as the first African-American woman, a former public defender. The last time there was someone who was actively involved in defense work was Thurgood Marshall. She also is, let's face it, not shy. Maybe she, we could talk about she kind was of how right she in spoke there. out. She uh, just decided, yes, she just decided, I'm here. I am equal to everyone else. So another feisty freshman. Completely. She was not going to she was not going to pull back in terms of asking questions from the bench, in terms of writing separate concurrences, everything about her. And she she signed this year a book contract. All things that say I'm here and I'm going to take advantage of this position. Going to your question about President Biden choosing her, I think all 
that we've seen in her character and her background say, this is someone who embodies what the left wants, and she's going to follow through. And they've been very happy with her. And I don't mean to single her out, because obviously Justice Sotomayor, extremely vocal, right, extremely passionate in their writings. But it's interesting to see the liberals on the court in their dissents, kind of how much more pointed, maybe even, I would say, personal they are in the way they approach this. Am I misreading that? No, you're not. And, you know, I I have noticed, you know, Justice Sotomayor certainly spoke from her personal experience on um, other cases that were tied to race and ethnicity. But Justice Jackson did something different in her dissent. First of all, she very much argued from data and studies and American history of discrimination, not just in the past, but in the present, and said to anyone who was going to read this opinion, look at what's happening now. Look at why it is important to be race conscious now. Which is a counterweight to the Chief Roberts way of thinking and certainly the Clarence Thomas way. Yes. And that's what I was going to say about one thing that's interesting about what Justice Jackson is doing. She is not shying away from provoking her colleagues. I have never seen Justice Thomas write such a personal concurrence. He joined the majority of John Roberts saying, yes, we need to get rid of racial affirmative action on campus. But then he did something very unusual. He read parts of his concurrence from the bench and took issue specifically with what Justice Jackson was writing in her separate dissent. And then when you read what he wrote, he names her and he talks personally about his own racial experience to counter what Justice Jackson is doing. And I thought two very distinct voices had joined this argument, all for the better, One thing that's, you know, obviously, as an audio nerd I'm loving is you can actually hear their voices, right, in the recordings of oral arguments, et cetera. And I also feel like that's a place where I hear them talking a little bit to each other in that dialogue, in those, like, arguments with lawyers. They sometimes end up going back and forth with each other. Often the lawyer at the lectern is a foil. Is not even, you know, it's not about him or her as much as it's about sending a message to a colleague down the mahogany bench. And Justice Jackson has actually argued her case during oral arguments many times, planting seeds that she hopes will end up in opinions or at least trying to show this is what I think the counterargument should be. The more and more people see them as just another partisan body, the more disruptive that is to government as a whole, because there's no final arbiter that you trust, so to speak. I think that's the risk. I think that's the great risk. And I also think that because if you're one election away from a different kind of decision, that sort of defeats the point. Exactly, because it's, it's the courts are supposed to not be buffeted by the political winds, and they only have their their stature, their reputation. You know, it's it's and so now it cliche. feels like they drive them. Like we're going to go into another election. People fully understand that to pick a party is to pick a court. Absolutely. And, you know, we talked earlier about how the Democrats have had bad luck with uh, timing for judicial appointments. But I'll tell you, the 22 elections, Democrats felt like they made headway because of the wake of Dobbs. So they could tell the public that there are real stakes here. Absolutely. 
What are you going to be looking for in the next couple of years as you're covering the court? Okay, I definitely, the newest justice. Oh my God, you look so excited. I, <laughs> I just, it has never gotten old for me at all. Okay, so two of the newest justices who intrigue me are Justice Jackson and Justice Barrett. You know, Justice Barrett is engaged in a little bit of a tease. You know, some of her questions, some of the things she's said and done suggest that maybe she might be moving over a little bit the way Kavanaugh on occasion does, but she's still voting solidly with the right wing. But I'm so I'm curious about her. I'm curious about um, how she's finding her own footing and what she's seeing. And then I'm also very curious about Justice Jackson and how much more, how she's going to emerge because obviously she's at the start of probably 30 years on the bench herself. You know, she will she will really change. She will see a real evolution in this court. And but she's I'm, starting out, as Thomas did, in the dissent camp. Exactly right. <laughs> and look at what happened to him since 1991. And then I'm also, I, I've always, you know, as you know, I wrote a biography of the chief. So I'm always watching how he's accommodating these competing factions. And a justice who we haven't talked much about, but who has always intrigued me, is Justice Kagan, because she has very strong political instincts and is has a sense of wanting to find consensus. But she doesn't have five people to work with, that's for sure. Well, Joan Biskupic, thank you so much for emptying out your notebook with me (laughs) and for talking about this and helping us make sense beyond each particular ruling, you know, helping us make sense of what we've just seen this past year. Thank you, Audie. I really enjoyed it. That's Joan Biskupic, Senior Supreme Court Analyst here at CNN. She's also got a great book out now called Nine Black Robes, Inside the Supreme Court's Drive to the Right and Its Historic Consequences. That's it for this episode of The Assignment. If you have an assignment for us, maybe a question you've always had or something you've noticed that you want us to explore, give us a call. Our number is 202-854-8802. And remember, we might use your voicemail in a future episode of our show. The Assignment is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by Carla Javier and Dan Bloom. Our producers are Lori Galaretta, Madeline Thompson, and Jennifer Lai. Our associate producer is Isoke Samuel. Matt Martinez is the senior producer of our show, Mixing and Sound Design by David Shulman. Dan DeZula is our technical director. Our executive producer is Steve Lichtai. Special thanks to Katie Hinman. I'm Audie Cornish, and thank you for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.